What is the role of business within society? How do we build organisations that contribute responsibly and sustainably to the communities in which they operate? And what does responsible leadership look like as we continue to lurch from crisis to crisis? This is the Responsible Business Leading the Way podcast from the University of Bristol Business School, working with the CIPD. I'm Katie Jacobs from the CIPD, and over this limited podcast series, myself and Professor Veronica Hope Haley, Dean of the University of Bristol Business School, are speaking to a selection of inspirational and insightful leaders about what it means to be a responsible business. We want to know, in the aftermath of the pandemic, what has changed about how we work, how we lead, and how we think about responsibility and trust in business? Because when it comes to building more responsible, resilient businesses and a fairer, more equitable society, there is still everything to play for. Episode 5. The Role of Responsible Business in Tackling the Climate Crisis I don't believe you're any kind of responsible leader if you aren't thinking about how we tackle the climate crisis now. Because a last-minute save won't work. It's a crisis we have to get ahead of. That's the renowned leadership commentator, Margaret Heffernan, pulling no punches when discussing responsible business and leadership with Veronica and myself in our original research in 2022. She's right. The impacts of the climate crisis are already being felt by individuals and businesses worldwide, with the fallout related to extreme weather events, from floods to wildfires, causing pain and havoc. And without swift and decisive action in slowing global temperature increases, things are only going to get worse. It's a crisis that's not too surprisingly playing on the minds of the majority of the British public. According to the Office for National Statistics, 74% of UK adults report feeling worried about climate change. As such, consumer and employee expectations of what businesses are doing to move their organisations to net zero are high. One recent survey by the sustainability charity RAP found that 63% of the UK public think businesses should act immediately on climate change. And according to the most recent Ipsos Global Trends survey, people look to brands and business more trusted than governments in most markets to act on climate change. But while many leaders are taking steps to act, reshaping organisational strategies and operations around a more sustainable approach, there still exist many who could fairly be accused of greenwashing. Talking the talk, but definitely not walking the walk. Private jet, anyone? So, how can business leaders tackle the challenge of climate change alongside all the other crises facing organisations today? How does a responsible business integrate sustainability deeply into its purpose, strategy, culture and operations? And in an age of increasing eco-anxiety, how can leaders help their people manage concerns and fears over the future of our planet? To address these questions, Veronica and I were joined by a business leader who is passionate about sustainability and already has first-hand experience of managing the impact of climate change on her organisation. Sarah Kenny is CEO of Global Design and Engineering Consultancy, BMT, and a marine environmental scientist by background. I began the conversation by asking Sarah to sum up how an increasing awareness of the importance of sustainability has reshaped BMT's strategy in recent years, and particularly since the advent of the pandemic. 
given that we're a, an engineering science and technology firm and we work actually on solving very complex problems for our customers, our people increasingly want to get involved with environmental challenges. They want to be a part of the solution for climate change. And as a company, clearly our values, our purpose, our vision, our mission have to be aligned to that for us to attract the absolute best talent we can, but also to retain that talent and to apply it to those issues for our customers. Now, clearly, if we're applying that for our customers, we have to be doing that ourselves. You can't have a purpose that's misaligned to the thing that you're delivering for your customers. So we have actually now put sustainability at the heart of BMT's strategy. And it's really fascinating the impact that's having across the entirety of what we do. So from everyone we get applying for jobs with the company, from the engagement we see with our current employees and very long-standing employees with what we do and who we are, but also with some of our customers, who some of whom have never bought sustainability or environmental services from us before, but now see how closely we hold it dear and are increasingly asking asking us to do that alongside some of the other engineering services that we offer to them. The need to take sustainability seriously is nothing new. The scientific community has been warning about the potentially devastating impacts of climate change since the 1980s, after all. But the pandemic did cause some organisations to shift and sharpen their focus on the environment and their place in the world, as Veronica explains. So I think there were a number of things that happened during the pandemic and the way that people started to think about the environment. So one of the things that became really obvious about the COVID pandemic was that no one organisation could solve the pandemic on its own. So you had this sudden realisation that people were dependent on each other, that actually by working together and through collaboration, they could start to get some kind of unified approach to the pandemic. And I think one of the things they learned about that was that if you're going to tackle some of the big challenges of which climate change is without doubt the biggest challenge, you're going to have to do that in an integrated way with partners beyond the boundaries of your own organisation. The second thing that happened was this putting purpose at the heart of the decision-making. And some of that was done because they wanted to be responsible businesses. Some of that was also done because there was no data for how you manage this pandemic. And therefore, purpose became really important because you had to know the purpose of your company and the values that you stood for in order to guide your decision making when there wasn't a rule book telling you how to do things. So how does that translate into the day-to-day responsibilities of running a global business when leaders have so many other complex demands on their time? Here's Sarah reflecting on the realities of building sustainability into the rhythm of life as a busy CEO. I think the really big challenge for all leaders is that when you're faced with all of the complexities, particularly as a chief executive or another C-suite officer, running a business, sustaining a business, looking after your people, looking after their safety. It would be easy to think that sustainability or the environmental agenda could somehow be yet another thing on the to-do list. What's obvious and, and actually is an imperative for me as a leader and for BMT as a company is that that's not optional. It's not an add-on. It's not a bolt-on. It's something that has to be embedded. And for it to be embedded, every single leader 
in the organisation has to live the values that go with it. You can't be purpose-led and then have a leader that talks at odds with the purpose of the company. Purpose has to be exactly that. It has to be completely owned, accepted, ingrained, something that's part of who you are and what you do. So I guess the responsibility then lies in how you translate that for people so that it doesn't just sound like stuff you say, it's stuff you do. You are walking the talk in absolutely every single way. It's difficult to do that without making it sound like you're greenwashing in some way. So you've got to bring it to life for people. You've got to give examples to people. And frankly, you've got to lead by example. So as a leader and as an executive team, for example, we took a a step to halve our business travel at the executive level to set the tone for the rest of the organisation. And not only have we achieved that, we've actually overachieved that. So being able to talk passionately and back it up with evidence is a really important signal to people that we're not just saying, well, sustainability is important to us and here's all the targets you've got to meet. This isn't just important to us. It's central to our business strategy, our thinking, our principles. And as leaders, we believe in it and this is what we're doing about it. It's evidently a responsibility that Sarah, for one, takes incredibly seriously. But how bought in is the business community in general? And How do we know who is genuinely and authentically trying to make a positive change for the good of the planet, rather than their bottom line? Here's Veronica again. There's a great academic commentator, Nicola Plessy, who writes about responsible leadership. She has different types of leader. She characterises the traditional approach to prioritising shareholder value as a traditional economist. That's a traditional economic approach and actually looking at issues beyond shareholder return is not within the remit of a traditional economist leadership approach. Then she has a second role, which is called opportunity seeker. And there she characterizes CEOs who sort of say, okay, I can see that I can make the PR for my company a little better. I'll probably encourage graduate recruitment more easily if I actually say I'll do a few things about the environment. I'll cherry pick a few things that are pretty easy to do. Uh, We'll write about them in the annual report. That's the traditional greenwashing critiques. Those are the people that are doing partial things about the climate, but they're cherry picking and they're not really doing it seriously. What you've heard from Sarah is what is characterised as this kind of integrationist approach where actually the issues over environmental sustainability just sit at the heart of every part of the business or the government service, whatever you are actually concerned with. They're not a nice to have, they're not an activity that involves just donations or volunteering or whatever. They are at the heart of how you think about doing your business. I think what's different is there's an awful lot more activism out there. There's employee activism, but there's also more regulation and there's likely to be more regulation coming along. There are certain investment groups that are putting pressure on uh, companies to justify themselves in terms of their ESG. There are numerous government services whereby you're not going to get a contract unless you can demonstrate your commitment to the environment. And so it's not just simply 
that some organisations are choosing to put a concern about the environment at the heart of their purpose and the way they do business, there's also an awful lot more pressure. From wildfires in popular holiday resorts to extreme heatwaves and increased risk of flooding on home soil, for many of us in the UK, climate change has become frighteningly real in recent years. And around the world, extreme weather events have been having quite an impact on BMT's global business operations too, as Sarah explains. It's been an interesting couple of years because uh, almost every part of BMT's geography has been impacted by some climate-related issue. We had gales in and floods in the Netherlands, in the UK. We've had uh, serious, either one extreme to the other in our offices in the USA. We've had uh, extreme floods and extreme drought, literally within months of each other. We've had a resurgence of the flooding that we'd, we'd experience with our Australian offices. And of course, you know, with all of that comes quite a bit of disruption to people's ability to, to get into the office, people's ability to get on and do the, the jobs that they do for clients, particularly if they need to go and fetch equipment and go offshore or if they've got to go to a client's site and that's very inaccessible, which often happens with uh, the work that we do for offshore energy industries, the marine environmental research or ships and shipping. That's so accessibility to, to clients to solve their problems has been an issue for us. Equally, looking after our people's well-being and safety and making sure that if they can't get to the office, we find other ways of helping them or supporting them. And, and equally, if the offices are damaged or if there's, there were issues with people's residential properties, you know, how do we reach out and help? And that's been a, a moving challenge. So it's been very real for our people for the last few years, constantly sort of reaching out. How can we help? Can we put local packages in place? So we do that as actively as we possibly can without sort of reaching too much into people's personal lives. But that's very important to us that people feel uh, safe, secure, but also well looked after if they have emergencies at home. And of course, as the rate of climatic events increases, it's inevitable that we're just going to have to keep adapting, keep responding, keep finding creative ways to keep our people safe, to look after their well-being and to make sure we carry on delivering for our clients. I think in terms of what we do, I employ scientists, engineers, technologists. We're very data-driven people. So living with the implications of climate change and thinking through what that means for our day jobs, for the customers we look after is, is kind of a natural thing. There's quite a high level of technical awareness, scientific awareness of climate change, climatic events, what it means. As Sarah says, within BMT's workforce, there's a higher scientific awareness around climate change than in the general population. But that doesn't mean people don't feel fearful and overwhelmed. Among the UK public, eco-anxiety is on the rise, with a poll by Friends of the Earth finding 68% of people are struggling with climate anxiety. How, I asked Sarah, can leaders help their people manage these worries? We may be technologists, scientists, engineers who do a day job and, you know, the blinkers are on. But of course, you go home and you're experiencing it there. The emotional and psychological impact of things you might be researching at work, manifesting themselves with people you know, people you love, your family, friends, wherever they are in the world is quite a different thing. So how do you avoid people feeling overwhelmed and great question if anyone's got the answer I'd love to know but our approach has been to find practical solutions that we can break down into smaller parts inside the business to help people along the way to deal with it. 
some of the things that you might think, well, that they're really quite small, but volunteering days, commitment to targets and showing how we're meeting targets. Some of these things are quite tactical, but they all contribute to helping people to feel that we're doing something purposeful and every little bit makes a difference so that you don't get that impression, well, this is such a big issue, I'm too small to make a difference. None of us are too small to make a difference. And actually, the message within the company is all of us do something small. The impact overall is significant. So let's find lots and lots of things we can do. I was very proud, actually, that we've just had our science-based targets signed off. Uh, So scope one and two emissions and scope three emissions, our route to net zero by 2035 is now set down and we have a plan for how to get there. We understand exactly what we need to do and when to achieve those goals. We publish it every year in our sustainability report. So it's there with the flag is down. This is what we're doing. It's not up for debate. Here we are behind it. And here are all the stories of our people talking about their commitment and what they're doing day in, day out inside the company and for our customers in order to demonstrate our commitment to those goals. Those things really matter. Being able to tell stories, make it real for people, give them little tangible things that they can do so they feel that they're making a difference and not just inside the company, but for our customers and then making them feel cared for when things are happening to them or their families or to the office. You know, it's not a panacea. I'm not remotely claiming that we're we're brilliant and we've got it right, but it, it feels like a good balance. And here's Veronica. I don't think we should denigrate small acts of change. And the Mother Teresa quote is, not all of us can do great things, but all of us can do small things with great love. These individual acts, for me now getting on a bus and a train, instead of actually driving to work, which is what I did for the previous seven years. On its own, it means nothing. In a multitude of individual small responses, it means everything. And so I think employers and leaders have a great responsibility to still praise these small acts that people do. In recent years, Many organisations have decided to demonstrate their commitment to sustainability and their social conscience by publicly committing to the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. But with 17 diverse goals covering a range of ambitious and stretching aims, is it appropriate for businesses to sign up to tackling all of them? Or is a more proportionate response more fitting? Here's Sarah on BMT's approach. When we looked at the 17 SDGs, we started out initially with what could we say as a statement about all 17 and quite quickly got to almost a sort of keep it real moment of do we have to say something about all 17? What? Who's driving that? Is it us? Is it somebody else? If we can't tick all 17, does that matter? If we don't want to tick all 17, does that matter? It then became a question of where will we make the biggest impact inside our business and with our stakeholders and overall? And uh, we actually landed on three. And it's actionable, it's measurable, and we can stand by it, we can report it if we want to, but actually, more importantly, we own it, we believe it, passionate about it. What will be interesting is the extent to which that approach stands the test of time in the context of this very strong desire to comply or explain and have a long list and for people to say, well, if you can't tick all of them, that means you're not doing it properly. I I personally, from a principal's point of view, think the opposite applies. 
if you can tick all 17, you're probably doing very few of them, actually, very well at all. As I reflected in the introduction to this episode, the public's expectations of businesses when it comes to tackling climate change are even higher than those they have of governments. And with sustainability becoming worryingly politicised in some countries, it's not untoward to think that business could perhaps make more of a positive impact. Here's Sarah again. Whereas governments or empower governments come and go in cycles, companies don't. They endure. I think that responsibility carries with that. But with it, I think, comes the, the necessity to keep it real, that you can't possibly do 17 quite complex things incredibly well, as well as running a business. Much better to say these are the ones we commit to, we stand by them. And these are all of the things we're doing to take our people in this direction to make a difference. And you have to be able to go with the ones that are aligned to who you are. And and I think this is kind of comes back to that point of what's the company's purpose? What's the organisation's purpose? And which ones are most closely aligned to that? And here's Veronica reflecting that while business leaders won't necessarily intervene into party politics, they are increasingly getting involved in discussions about what is good for society. People have started to really trust businesses and business leaders more because, unlike politicians, they have shown that they will take a longer view and they will actually intervene in debates about what is good for society and they won't necessarily intervene into party politics that you know it's a strange thing that business now is being looked to to provide that longer view to show that okay this is going to take a bit of time but we can be consistent and committed to our approach and of course the way that they will achieve that is by continually taking CEOs like Sarah who aren't going to deviate from keeping climate change at the heart of their activities. So how do we make sure our future leaders make bravely and loudly tackling climate change part of their agenda? I asked Veronica what she thinks the need for action means for leadership development and selection. I think CEOs are increasingly going to be chosen by an awful lot of businesses. Yes, for their commercial acumen, their ability and competence to run a business, of course. You're not going to get to CEO level unless you can do that. But there's going to be this overlay on are they concerned about the environment and the sustainability and and what are they going to hand on to their successor? So I think people will be asked a lot more in selection interviews is that, say, if you're going into a five-year tenure as a CEO, okay, you're picking up this much that we're doing on the environment. What are you going to then leave as a legacy over the next five years for the next person to pick up and carry on? So I think they're going to be asked to be much more, funnily enough, of a team player over time, not go for some flashy environmental interventions. I think that's one thing. I think the second thing is that obviously they're going to be asked, literally, do they believe that businesses have a a contribution to make to society beyond just delivering a profit or, God forbid, a loss? Do they literally commit to the idea that businesses are part of society and therefore they have a responsibility into society? And thirdly, I think the competence that is going to 
be required increasingly is not just an ability to network well with your shareholders, but to be able to network and create trusting relationships with a much bigger range of stakeholders across society, ranging from international charities, government, uh, local community activist groups, um, in order to address this climate change challenge. And finally, here's Sarah on what she believes the future of responsible business is. The future of responsible business is purpose-driven organisations led by people who absolutely embody that purpose. We can only hope that for all business leaders, that purpose includes a genuine dedication to environmental sustainability for the sake of all of our futures. Thanks for listening to the Responsible Business Leading the Way podcast, produced by the University of Bristol, working with the CIPD. Find out more about the Business School's research, courses and opportunities to collaborate at bristol.ac.uk. And if you want to read the original research this series is based on, search Responsible Business Through Crisis at cipd.org. Hi there, it's Katie Jacobs here from Responsible Business Leading the Way podcast. If you like what you've been hearing, there's another podcast I think you'd also really enjoy. What If, a podcast from the CIPD's Work magazine, now on its fourth series, allows your imagination to run wild about the world of work and to wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again. Join me and my co-host Jenny Roper, editor of Work magazine, as we ask experts to dispense with the here and now, embrace the art of the possible and ponder what if. What if everyone got cancelled? We all told the truth at work or fell out of love with charismatic leaders. Listen to What If wherever you get your podcasts.